Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you again. It's a privilege to get to preach um, in front of you. If uh, you haven't met, met me yet, my name is Jake. I'm an elder here at Friendship. Um, if, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. You can come up and say hi to me. I'll be at Next Steps after the service. Um, this summer, we've been going through the Psalms together. Last week, Pastor Andrew uh, was uh, speaking on Psalms of Remembrance. We've been going through our Bible reading plan together and reading through the Psalms this summer as well. And this week, we're going to be going through a psalm of wisdom, a psalm of wisdom. Um, Pastor Andrew mentioned this music group called Poor Bishop Hooper, that they, they wrote music and song to every psalm that there is in, in the psalms, all 150 of them. And, and their definition of a psalm of wisdom is this. Psalms of wisdom are similar to the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Think Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. These psalms provide instruction, both specifically and broadly, on how to live life and exist in relationship with God. And when it comes to Psalms of Wisdom, um, Psalm 119 kind of stands above the rest. Um, It's a a huge book. Um, It's maybe the most popular. Um, And specifically today, we're going to be going through verses 9 uh, through 16. And when you read Psalm 119 in its entirety, it can almost seem redundant in that the psalmist is constantly praising God and pointing at his word, crying out to God, praising him according to his word, which would be his testimonies, his commandments, his instructions, his promises. And we here at Friendship, you hear us talk about God's word all the time, how, how much we care about it, knowing it. We, we put out a Bible reading plan the past couple of years so that we can go through it together and know it. So what doesn't plague us is, yes, we do care to know it, But oftentimes, although we know we should know it, we know we should read God's word, it doesn't grip us. It doesn't captivate us the way that we would hope that it does. Our hearts become dull to it. Um, So my hope here today is that I can help us to see not only that we need to know God's word, of course that's important, but that we need to be shaped by it. We need to be shaped by it. We need to delight in it and love it and cherish it. So how does that happen? How does that happen? And we're going to jump right in. Psalm 119, we're at verse, starting at verse 9. I'll ask you to stand with me as we read uh, God's word together. Psalm 119, verse 9 through 16. It says this, How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, please guide us. Please help us this morning. We need your word. It's the way by which you have given us a way to change, a way to become more righteous and more godly, not just so that we can feel good about ourselves, but so that we can know you more, delight in you more. Help us to do so this morning. Open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the first question I want to ask is this. What is the concern of Psalm 119? 
And we find the answer to that in verses 1 and 2 that we, we didn't read. Um, we just read verses 9 through 16. So we have to reach back a little bit into the beginning of the chapter. And it says this, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. So we see here that the concern of the psalmist is this, how can I be blessed? How can I be blessed? And more than that, more specifically, how can I be blessed by God? The word blessed, I think, needs some explanation because in our context here in America, we see that word used a lot in a lot of different contexts and by churches, by non-Christians, by all kinds of people, and they mean lots of different things. So what does it mean? And, and oftentimes what we think of is the outcome of blessing, financial or material gain. We get a house, a job. Um, I think what's happened to the word blessed is it's been abused or misconstrued to the point that many people are hesitant to use it. And I don't think that's a good thing. The word is used constantly throughout the Bible, and I think we should become confident in the language of the Bible. So I want us this morning to learn what blessed means and know how to use it, assuming we use it correctly. So let's first say what it's not. First, it's not primarily or only material or financial blessing. It's not primarily or only material financial blessing. Often when circumstances in our lives are going well, outcome turns our way, we'll say, I'm blessed. God has blessed me. Um, I've heard Christians say in response, if you've ever heard this before, someone will say, man, I'm lucky or I'm fortunate. And then a Christian will turn and say, you're not fortunate, you're blessed. You know, which I think that's not a, that's not a bad thing to say. Um, we'll say this when we get a new job, we close on a new house, we get into a school, we get good grades, which by the way, may be true. God promises um, prosperity in this life for those that follow him in some degree. Um, he, he promises to bless us materially in the Bible. It's, not, it's just that many of us have heard that word abused by prosperity gospel teachers. And what I mean is picture like a televangelist. They say, give this amount of money and God will bless you. God will multiply it. And um, that's an abuse. And so many of us become scared to use the word um, or maybe cringe a little bit when we hear someone say it. Um, so it's not as if the only way we can know we're blessed is by how prosperous our lives are. If, for example, we can't apply this to early Christians, think about the apostles. They certainly were not blessed financially. God, Jesus says that uh, we wouldn't have a place to lay our heads. Um, if we apply it to the apostles, think about the apostles. Tradition tells us that all but one or two of them were killed for their faith. Um, so it's not true that, that being blessed just means to be financially well off because that would mean that their lives weren't blessed, and they certainly were. The Bible is full of uses of the word blessed that can't mean prosperity or financial gain. For example, let's look at the book of Job. Um, Job chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Blessing here cannot mean financial or material prosperity. Do you know the book of Job? What happened to Job? Job, um, all of his possessions were taken away from him. His kids died, and his body, his health was taken from him. His body was covered in sores. Um, so it certainly doesn't just mean prosperity in that sense. Uh, we also see the phrase, blessed be God, or we see people in the Bible say, I will bless God. 
throughout the Bible. So that means it can't mean financial prosperity or anything because we can't give those things to God. God already owns all of it. Psalm 59 through 12 say, says this, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. God has no needs that we can fulfill. He needs nothing from us, so blessing God cannot mean blessing God in that way. So what does it mean? What does it mean? And this is my best I won't say guess, but my best way at a definition, my answer would be this, to show favor or to bestow. And I would throw the word grace in there, to bestow grace. Maybe you can think of something better. I'm sure you could, but it doesn't matter what I think or anyone else thinks. If um, We want to see how the Bible defines a word. Um, I've heard a pastor, John Piper, talk about um, how we shouldn't just look up a word in, in the dictionary because someone's defining that word. We should look in the Bible to see how a word is defined. And so that's what I'm trying to do this morning. That's what I think it means to show favor, to bestow. So let me, let me try and lay that out for you. First, Job 5:17, the verse that we just read, said, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. The writer here is saying to us this, don't take the reproof or the discipline of God to mean that you aren't blessed or aren't favored. Don't take the reproof or the discipline of God, the hard situations in life, don't take those to mean that we aren't blessed or favored. In fact, it means just the opposite. As a child, of, if you are a child of God this morning, if you are a Christian, the discipline of God is showing you that you are favored shows you that you are blessed. So, like Job, when things are taken away in our lives, when our house is taken away, when everything goes to ruin, Job, in that moment, was able to say, this is blessing. God is blessing those who, who are reproved and disciplined by God. What an amazing thing to say. How in the world does discipline show us that we're favored? Doesn't it, doesn't it show me, isn't this what we, what we think when, when bad things happen in our lives? We think God is, he's trying to, to show me that he's angry at me. I must have done something wrong, therefore things are not going well. We can't think that way. Emphatically, no, we cannot think that way. That's exactly the kind of wisdom that was rebuked by God in the book of Job. Do you remember Job had three friends that were counseling him and they give him that sort of advice. They say, you must have done something wrong, Job. And then those friends at the end of the book are rebuked. And so let's not think that way. Let's think this way. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, they help us. They say this, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. How does reproof and discipline show us that we're favored? Because God causes discipline in your life for this reason, because you are his child. Because you are his child. Isn't it amazing that in this life, even in our suffering, even in the hardest situations when we begin to think that God's betrayed us, he says, no, this actually shows you that I love you. This shows you that I'm with you. I delight in you. 
I care for you. The reason that you're going through this is because you're mine. Um, So that's the first part of my definition, to show favor. God is showing us favor when it says that we're blessed. The other part um, that I would say is to bestow or bestow grace. Uh, And I would go to Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. It says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So how has he blessed us? This verse says, he has blessed us with his glorious grace that is found in the beloved, that is in Jesus Christ. The way in which he has blessed us is by bestowing grace on us through Jesus Christ. He bestows grace. Um, that's all I have to say about the word blessed this morning. I, I, we, there's so much more that could be said. I mean, we could preach many sermons on it. don't have the time to do that now. We'll get back to Psalm 119 here. So let's move on. My, my second point is this question, or the question I want to ask is this, how can I keep my way pure? We see that at the very beginning of the passage today in verse 9. And we've made one really big assumption this, this morning so far, and that's this, that you and I care to be blessed by God, and we care about this question, how can I keep my way pure? Do you care about that question? Is that an important question for you this morning? You can almost hear the desperation in the writer's voice here crying out, how can I keep my way pure? How does that question sit with you? I don't think this question resonates much with the world. I don't think you see many people outside of a religious scenario asking the question, how can I keep my way pure? Because it's just that people in the world are asking different questions. Our society, as far as I can tell, is concerned with many other questions. This question assumes the possibility or even the likelihood that I'm drawn to impure things. We see it in that wording, how can I keep my way pure? It's assuming that I'm a sinner, that the world and the world and human nature, they don't think this way. The natural person might say, well, yes, I do some good things, I do some bad things, but in the end... I'll probably go to heaven when I die if there is a heaven because I do more good than bad. Um, that's not the language of, of Scripture. We, we so often compare ourselves to the worst of the worst, don't we? We, we look at um, some genocidal dictator like uh, Hitler and we say, well, I'm, Hitler, I'm sure, will go to hell, but not me because I'm not that bad. And... Um, no, we need to see our need, church. This is, this is so important. We need to see our need, our proclivity for sin, our gravitation away from God, because if we don't, we won't see our need for a Savior. We won't see our need for a Savior. And in turn, we won't see our need for purity, like what the psalmist is saying here. How can I keep my way pure? That can be so often why there are those who stay away from Christianity or God, because why would I need this Jesus if I don't, I mean, why do I need him? Things are going fine in my life. I don't need a savior. I don't need someone to give me answers to how to live if I already have. I'm, I'm doing pretty good on my own. No, we, we can't think that way. Let us not think this way. Let us, with the psalmist, say, how can I keep my way pure? One way we can test how much we depend on God is our prayer life. A prayer life. Think about it like this. The less you need God, the less you need his help, his spirit, his comfort, his direction. The less you need him, the less you'll communicate with him, the less you'll cry out to him. 
the less you'll worship him and thank him. Um, I, I heard someone recently at this church say that um, their prayer life had been greatly helped by reading through the Psalms this summer, which I find very encouraging. And, and I, I would agree with that. I think that that just happens by reading the Psalms. We see the psalmist's um, dependence on God, their need for help. Um, and we see that and we, we, we identify with it and it helps us. Um, we're pointed there as well. This, this past week also, I was listening to a Q&A session at a Christian conference that happens every year, and they were talking about prayer. There's a pastor there named H.B. Uh, Charles Jr., and he said this. He said, prayer advertises our dependence upon God. Prayer is a declaration of dependence. I think that is the key to prayer. The key to effective prayer is a heart of dependence. My willingness, my diligence, my devotion to prayer exposes, it exposes who or what I truly depend on. So can you hear what the psalmist say, how can I keep my way pure? Is that your heart's desire? And my point in saying all this is not to beat you down, to make you feel bad about your prayer life or anything like that. I just want us to see our deep need for God, our deep need for God. Do you see that this morning? I hope you can. And moving on from that, the, the second part of that verse, the answer to that question, how can I keep my way pure? The psalmist answers this way, by guarding it according to your word. By guarding it according to your word. This is his answer. He says, by using God's word, by knowing it with our minds and cherishing it with our hearts. Let us not move on to special techniques, to church programs, to other things in order to become more godly, but let us do this. Look to God in his word and be shaped by it. It has all that we need. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has provided everything that we need for righteousness through his word. We certainly need it. We don't need anything more than it for our righteousness. God has given it to us for that purpose. Furthermore, let's read verse 10. It says this, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Two things. Let's first notice the connection between these two statements. Um, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. With my whole heart, I seek you, God. Let me not wander from your commandments. What the psalmist is getting at is this. The way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, mainly, his will, what he cares about, his likes and dislikes, his loves and hates, is by giving us his word. That's why we, we don't need to look elsewhere. He's chosen to reveal himself to us by his word. The main way we seek him is in accordance with his word. Um, let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to anticipate the desires of someone that you know, uh, your, a friend, a parent, a coworker, um, your spouse? For example, I'm sure you've been in this situation. It's that person's birthday, and you've been asking them for weeks, months maybe, what do you want for your birthday? Will you just tell me? Um, and they're like, I don't, just, you'll come up with something good. And so you're like, okay, and, and their birthday comes around, and you did your best to pick out something thoughtful, and it's their day, 
it's the day of their birthday, and they open the box and look at your gift, and they do their best to look excited, um, but you can tell that they're not really. And I'm sure we've all been in that situation. You know, it's like you're expecting something cool, and you get a shirt, you know, and uh, just not thrilled with the gift. It's like that. Have you seen that video of the kid who gets the parent from, or the, the gift from their parents, and it's an avocado? They're like, it's an avocado, thanks. That's how we feel sometimes with gifts. God does not work that way. We don't have to guess at what God cares about. We don't have to guess at what he loves and hates. We don't have to guess at what he's after, what his will is. He has given given it to us in his word. It's why we are constantly talking about a Bible reading plan and, and fixing our eyes each Sunday and and throughout the week on God's word. It's so that we can be shaped by it. We can know it. We can, so that we ultimately can know God. It's a window into the reality of God. One caution here, this doesn't mean that we're expected to know everything as if we need to feel behind every time someone recites a Bible verse that we don't know. Um, Verse 12 says this, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Teach me your statutes. This assumes that the psalmist doesn't already know everything. The psalmist doesn't know, probably doesn't know every single commandment, doesn't know every single statute, doesn't know how to apply them all perfectly. We need God's help. That's why we, we cry out to him and we say, God, help us, teach me. He knows our weakness. He knows we tend to drift. We tend to wander. We get confused. We misunderstand things. I mean, how, how many of us, if you've been a Christian for any time, amount of time, you can look back five years and you can be like, was I even a Christian? I had, I had a, what was I doing back then? You know, you, you feel, and then five years from now, you're going to feel the same way about how you, where you're at right now. And we need God's help to teach us. Um, you know, I have a son. He's just a couple months short of two. His name is Thaddeus. And we're getting to the point where we're just recently, we're trying to help him understand there are certain things he can do, certain things he can't do. He can't take a hard golf ball and walk up a foot in front of somebody and throw it at their face. Um, lots of things that he, he can't do, some things he can. And it didn't only take one time of us telling him that he can't do that for him to learn that he can't do that. Sometimes he forgets. Sometimes he just doesn't feel like following our rules, no matter how logical we feel that they are. And sometimes he gets disciplined for those kinds of things. Um, My point is this. Are we not often like my son with God? Are we not often like that two-year-old? We forget what he's told us. We wander away from his ways. We know the right thing to do, and we, we blatantly disobey it. And yet, we can still cry out to God and say, Lord, teach me your statutes. Teach me your commandments. Help me. Remember, dependence. I can't remember the exact words we sang about it this morning, about depending on God, him teaching us how to abide. Let that be your heart cry this morning. By the way, what was the psalmist's motivation to learn God's rules and commandments and testimonies? We, we kind of talked about it already. Verse 8, he said, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Do not utterly forsake me. Verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not, listen to the second part, that I might not sin against you. So what is the psalmist trying to do? He wants to know and obey God's word so that he won't break communion with God. 
so that he can remain, remain close to God. It isn't so that he'll be labeled a bad Christian if he breaks God's rules, so that people will look down on him. His motivation was that he wants to remain close to God. This doesn't mean that he lived in a constant state of fear that God was going to walk away at the smallest of his sins or that he only expected discipline or anger from God. Let's go back to the parent-child metaphor for a second. If I gave my child instructions and they disobey, am I kicking my child out of the family? No. Am I going to rehome my child? No. I'll be grieved because the instructions I gave them were for their benefit, for their good or for the, for the good of those around them, but I still love them. They're still my child. I still abide with them. Nothing can change that. How much, if I feel that way as a parent, how much more does God feel that way towards us? He doesn't just give us commandments to obey because of some arbitrary reason, but because he's looking out for our good. Let us remember what Andrew stated last week. We get the grace from God and he gets the glory. As we As we see the grace that he is pouring out to us, our hearts turn in thankfulness to him. So why does the psalmist want to obey God? I know his word, to stay close to God. And we're going to go into my third point here. Why would he want to stay close to him? Is it so that he can go to heaven when he dies? Is it so that he can live a prosperous life or that God will answer all my prayers? No, the reason that he wanted to stay close to God was this, knowing God is its own reward. He wanted to know God for no other reason than this, that there's nothing better in this world than to to know this God. And this brings me to my final point, delight, delight. We see this throughout this passage in Uh, verses 9 through 16. The psalmist throughout the passage uses language to show that it's not only about packing our minds full of scripture and getting ourselves to obey with our bodies the word of God, we must delight to know God and his word. Verses 10 and 11 say this, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word must go down deeper than only our minds. Our minds are hugely important. God cares about our minds, but our minds are there to serve our hearts. Our minds are there to serve our hearts. What are our hearts? Our hearts are the seat of who we are. Our hearts are our desires, our will, what we care about. We operate out of our hearts. Out of the abundance of the, of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Um, we want our minds to serve our hearts, Our minds serve our hearts in that as we learn the ways of God in our mind and meditate on them, we come to love and cherish them. So we seek God not just with our minds, but with our hearts. Verse 11, what I just read, says, We must store up his word in my heart that I won't sin against you. This means it's not just by knowing God and his words with our our minds that will change us, but it's by it affecting the way that we feel affecting the things we delight in, affecting what we're satisfied with, that's what will change us. Because our actions flow out of our heart. Our actions flow out of the things that we love, 
the things that we desire. Think about, isn't this true in your own life? Think about, what do you think about the most often? Where do you spend your mo- the most of your, of your time? Is it with your kids, with your spouse, with your family? What do you think about the most? Is it a girlfriend or boyfriend, your job, your possessions like a car or a house, a, a certain hobby that you enjoy? Which, by the way, all those, all those things I just listed, we would always say those are good things, would we not? Um, when I was younger, elementary age, middle school age, I loved sports. I played sports, but I was obsessed with following professional sports. I would watch baseball, basketball, football, soccer, tennis. I loved to watch them. And then in my free time, I would research everything there was to know about my favorite teams. I'm a big, for example, I was a big, or am a big Chicago Cubs fan. So I would um, follow how the team is doing, follow all the players and their stats, um, the team's record. If they're going to make the playoffs, I'd pay attention to the minor league teams to see what players were coming up to the major league team next. Um, I loved it. It took up so much of my time when I was younger. It wasn't wearisome to me. It wasn't like I had to have someone come up to me each day and say, remember to look at the Chicago Cubs stats today. I just did it because I loved it. I enjoyed it. It's the same in our lives with God. God is not just a master that we're called to obey without any affection for him. We're called to love him and cherish him. It's, and one caution here, it's not as if every morning we wake up desiring to pray, you know, desiring to worship God, singing hymns. There are hard days, there are hard moments, times when we just feel down in the dumps. Constantly, remember, we are sinners, we have a human nature, we mess up, we, that is happening all the time. But generally speaking, do we desire, is there an inclination towards God in our lives? So how does this happen? How do our hearts go from loving the things of this world more than loving the things of God? How does that change? And my answer would be this, we must see God's beauty. We must see God's goodness. We must see his grace towards us, his holiness, and meditate on it. Verse 15 says this, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. The way that our hearts change to love and delight in God and his word is by meditating on his word and fixing our eyes on him. Maybe the reason that you're here today and you don't love God the way you think you should or you don't delight in him as much as you want to is because you haven't, maybe at some point in your life you have, but you haven't seen God's beauty, his goodness, his grace to you. Because as we see that, as we see that, that's what we become the things that we love and delight in. As we see God for who he is, we are changed on the spot. So my advice would be surround yourself with the things of God. Surround yourself with his word. Meditate on it. Chew on it. Like, think of it like a hard piece of candy that you put in your mouth and you savor it for a while. As you're going throughout your day, do that with verses. Do that with God's word, his testimonies, his promises to you. Let them bleed out into every part of your life. 
And while we read, while we meditate, we must have God's help. We have to have God's help. This isn't something that we can force to happen. We need his spirit. Psalm 119, verse 18, just after our passage today, says this, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Oh God, open my eyes that I will see wondrous things in your law. God, help me. In those moments when they inevitably come, when we are struggling and we don't feel like reading our Bibles, we don't feel like praying, we'd rather do so many other things, we, we pray, God, help me. God, teach me. God, open my eyes. When our eyes are opened by the Spirit of God to see the beauty of God, when our eyes are opened by the Spirit of God to see the beauty of God, we're changed forever. We simply fix our eyes on God and we ask for help to see his beauty. And once we see it, we love and desire him more than anything else. For an example of this, let's look at verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Is that not an amazing thought? Think about that for a moment. All riches. That same pastor I mentioned, John Piper, I've heard him say something like this. Think about at the end of your life, You've come to own everything. You own everything. You own every house, every piece of property. You own Google, you own Apple, you own Walmart, everything. And you come to God at the end of your life, and it doesn't compare. Not if you own everything. That's what the psalmist is saying. I delight as much as in all riches in your testimonies. It's amazing. And it's true. There's nothing more satisfying than knowing this God. And here's the final thing I want to say. God's beauty, his goodness, his grace is most clearly seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, we, do, we see God's justice. We see his holiness in that Jesus, the perfect son of God, he had to die in our place in order for our sin debt to be paid. We're sinners. We've talked about that this morning already. And we couldn't pay our own sin debt and, and we couldn't draw near to God. And so we had to send Jesus so that he would die for us so that we could come to know him. So we see his justice and his holiness, but we see this. We see his grace. God was willing to look at us in our sin and in love He sent his own son to die in our place. He took the initiative towards us. Not just so that we could go to heaven or live a good life, but so that we could know him. And all we're called to do is to look to Jesus and believe him, rest in him. We we turn from the things that we are resting in now. We, We do this the first time we ever put faith in Christ, and we do this throughout our lives. We are constantly turning from the things of this world, turning to the things of the flesh, and turning to God and saying, your promises are better. Nothing in this world can promise the things that you promise me. I rest in you. Moment by moment, that's what we do. Romans 8.32 says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So my encouragement, my exhortation for you today would be stop. Stop looking to the things of this world. Stop working towards 
success in this world and turn to God and rest in him. Look to him. Ask him for help. Ask him to open your eyes to see his beauty and his grace and his goodness. And you'll be changed. You'll be changed. Look to him today. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, for Psalm 119. I pray that you would come and do this work now, that you would help us to see you for who you are, primarily at the cross, that we could see your holiness and your goodness. Please come and by your spirit do that now. Do that work. Would you just come and break down all the barriers in our hearts that we have to you? Give us deeper desires for your word and for your spirit and for all the things that you are. We can't do this without you. Would you come and do that now? Help us to respond in repentance and faith, turning away from the things of this flesh, dying to ourselves every day so that we can gain the whole world, which is you. You mean more to us than anything else that this world can offer. So please come, help us now. Give us hearts of thankfulness. Give us eyes to see all that you are, all the ways that you've blessed us, not just financially and materially, but spiritually. You've given us your son. You've given us your spirit. There's there's nothing more satisfying than knowing you, Lord. Give us a deep longing for you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.